from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. This is Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados, and I am your host, Christopher Calloway. And today on this show, commemorating Black History Month, I am joined by Ken Quattro. He's the author of Invisible Men, the trailblazing black artists of comic books. The research he did for this book took over two decades using original source material, including official documents, contemporaneous newspaper articles, and the comics these men produced. Learn how some of these artists denied their black heritage while others embraced it. Most of them led two professional lives, one working in the comic art shops and the other working in fine art or newspapers, magazines, or as commercial artists. Invisible Men is 240 pages. It's published through Yo Books and is loaded with history, photos, and art from the comics these pioneers helped produce. After discussing the book, Ken and I talk about his lifelong passion, comic books. We cover the dawn of the Marvel Age, and Ken was there. What is the difference between writing and storytelling, and what issue explains the greatness of comics in just five pages? And turning to the movies, why has there never been a highly successful Fantastic Four movie? Ken has the answer that lies in embracing the FF's Silver Age roots. During this interview, you will learn a lot about the golden age of comics, these pioneering black men who worked in the comic art shops, and the foundation they laid for black artists and black superhero comics of the modern age. So please join me in welcoming writer Ken Quattro, author of Invisible Men, the trailblazing black artists of comic books. Here now, on Creator Talks. Ken, welcome to Creator Talks. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. I'm going to start at the end. A statement in your book, Invisible Men, Trailblazing Black Artists of Comic Books. You had written that one thing they shared was for too long, they lingered out of mind and out of sight of their lighter-skinned peers, evading the scrutiny of historians and the eyes that look past them to everyone who only saw their skin color and nothing more without body or substance as if they were invisible. And you have brought to light the lives of a lot of men who had a very important impact on comic books in their early years, many whom I've never heard of. You've made them visible, sir. That was the whole intention there, huh, Chris? You know, unfortunately, uh, comic books, just like most of the media, it's basically been just seen from one perspective, of the white perspective. And what I try to do was uh, show that there is actually other perspectives, other ways of looking at history, and particularly comic book history. And that's why, uh, to do my research and everything, the vast majority of it was done through uh, the black media, newspapers, magazines, books, from 1950 and back, basically. I was impressed with how much detail, how much digging you must have done. This was something you began 20 years ago, you said? Just about 20 years ago. What happened was I've been writing articles about comics and stuff like that for decades. The last count, I have something like 7,000 articles on my computer. So I've been doing this a long time. I was interested in uh, writing something about Matt Baker, who's always one of my favorite artists. He's probably the premier uh, romance comic artist of the Golden Age. At the time, there was not much known about Matt Baker. There was basically two facts that most people knew about him, that he was black and that he died young. So I kept asking around for years, anybody who would have any information on Matt Baker, please contact me through various forums and uh, different contacts I had. 
Well, finally, somebody, I wish I could remember who it was, said to me, have you considered uh, contacting Mr. Samuel Joyner, who was a retired black cartoonist living in Philadelphia? And I, you know, never heard his name, so I I, uh, hunted him down, and I wrote him a letter. I've done this many times, contacted somebody out of the blue, and either no answer or you get one or two lines that are pretty ambiguous because people are kind of apprehensive about just responding to, you know, an anonymous person. But Mr. Joyner wrote me back a four-page detailed letter with a whole packet of clippings and uh, photocopies from his own files of not only things regarding Matt Baker, but Elmer Stoner and a few other artists. He referred to briefly, like Jay Jackson and um, Ted Shearer, who was basically a cartoonist, but it just opened my eyes. It was like, well, wait a minute, what? It dawned on me. There's more here than what I would realized. So I quickly wrote him back. And again, he wrote me back another letter with more information, mostly about his own career. He'd been a cartoonist working mostly in black media and commercial art for about 40 years. And he'd retired. This is the early 2000s, I would guess. That was my starting point. So I started to look up some of the names that he'd uh, referred to, and there was nothing in white newspapers. I go like, that's really weird. How could these guys not even you know, show up anywhere, because that's where I do a lot of my research, is through primary sources, through newspapers, magazines, and I try to find contemporaneous references to people. Well, it dawned on me, I said, like, well, what about black newspapers? Well, black newspapers are hard to find. More so now, it's easier because of digitalization, online resources. At the time, it was difficult. So I finally hunted down a couple places that had some black newspapers and started my research there. Well, all of a sudden, a whole new world opened up. There was all these references to these artists, and then I started making connections. One thread leads to another, you know, a mention of one name, or they would mention a person that they'd worked with or uh, somebody they'd associated with, and it just went from there. It's hard to explain the entire process. Like I said, I read literally thousands of newspapers and magazines and everything to put this all together. It was, it was a huge mountain of material. I'd say only maybe about a third of it got into the book. I mean, I still have an awful lot that hasn't been uh, put into print. That's how I did it. The things that you had to leave out, was it due to space limitations, or are they other individuals you want to cover later on? It's both. Uh, Greg Yo, who was my uh, publisher, there's only so much room you have in a book. There's only so much room that IDW, which is the overseeing uh, publisher of the book, would allow. And It started out being 200 pages. As it went on, even Craig could see that there was way too much that I had to limit it to 200 pages, and IDW agreed to allow it to go up to 250, which I was very thankful for. But even so, I had to stop the book at around 1950, which there's obviously more artists that I could have included in there, like Tom Feelings and E. Harper Johnson and people like that. I mean, I'm working on an article right now about another artist I just recently came across, another black artist that I just sort of discovered. It's a continuing process. What I've done, actually, to supplement the book, I set up a blog as like a companion piece to it. I premiered it the same day the the book dropped back in December. And what it is, it's Invisible Men blog. And what I've been doing is starting to put some information that I left out of the book online. And if at some point the sales of the book warranted or somebody's interested and they want to do another volume, I'd be more than happy to continue it because there's so much more that I have. I like to talk about some of the men that you highlight in your book. And one of the first ones was Adolphus Barreau Grippon. 
Back then, some people, to be successful, to be accepted, they had to pass themselves off as white, and that is one of the things he did. Exactly. He obviously wasn't the only one. George Harriman, for all intents and purposes, basically passed himself off as white. There may have been people who had you know, suspicions about his mixed racial background, but it was generally thought that he was you know, white. And Bro did the same thing. But Bro basically adopted an entire new persona, if you read the book. He changed his name. He changed everything about his background. It was amazing, the efforts he went through. But it would be easy for people to condemn what he did. It was very understandable if he wanted to succeed, and he did. He went to Yale. He found entry into the white media. He became a very successful uh, pulp artist and illustrator you know, for years and years, starting from the 1920s right on through to the 50s, 60s, and I think he worked up to the 70s. He was an editor at Fawcett, but he denied his entire uh, background. Like I said, he changed his origins of his mother and everything else. He changed names. He changed locations. It was very strange. In some of the letters, which I didn't include in there, he wrote a lot of letters later in life to local newspapers in um, South Carolina, where he was from. He was from Charleston, South Carolina. And he was very uh, right-wing. Interesting, because uh, some of his closest friends were Strom Thurmond and uh, Mendel Rivers, who were very uh, well-known uh, segregationists at the time. I believe he belonged to a Sons of the Confederacy organization. Basically, he had a hatred of liberals and, and the whites, the white liberals in northern cities. It's very interesting, some of these letters, but again, due to space limitations, I couldn't put all this stuff in the book. On one hand, it's understandable what he did, but he took it to extremes. You wrote about Elmer Cecil Stone from Wilkes-Barre, PA. He did some of the Blue Beetle covers. He did one of the first minorities in comics in a positive light, The Challenger. And he didn't deny his heritage. And he did both fine art and comics. Exactly. He was sort of like the flip side of Bro, they basically came up at the same time. They're almost exactly the same age, about a year or two apart in age. I think Stoner might have been slightly older. But he never tried to hide, even though he was light-skinned, the fact that he was black. And most of his work was done in the white media, which was unusual for the time for a man who was known to be black to be working in white media. But he was an illustrator. He'd done children's books. He'd done uh, pulps and everything, even before he started working in comics. And he did a, a huge amount of comic books, much more so than he's ever given credit for. For Fox publications, I believe it's about 1944 through 46, every single cover just about was drawn by Elmer Stoner, even though it's not credited anywhere in you know, most credits. And he drew the interiors for many of them, including the Blue Beetle. He, he was basically the Blue Beetle artist for about two or three years, the sole Blue Beetle artist. And he's the one that most people, ironically... When they refer to the Blue Beetle, the perception people have is of Elmer Stoner's work. You know, he continued working in comics even after that period, mostly in promotional comics. He did a lot for Vital. He did Blackstone things for uh, Harry Blackstone. He did a comic book series and even published a, a few of his own comics. Most of his comic stories were written by his wife, ironically, his wife Henriette, and they were a, a team. But at the same time, he was also an established painter. He was classically trained. He trained in... Uh, France. And when he came back, he had a, a well-received exhibition at a Harlem uh, library in 1922. And he and his first wife became a part of the literary social circle of the Harlem Renaissance. And they associated with all these people like Langston Hughes and Zora Houston and stuff like that. He was very much a part of the Harlem Renaissance. 
so that's all part of that dual consciousness that I talk about in there, where uh, in one world, he was an established fine artist. In another world, he was working in the lowest part of the publication industry, which was comic books. To me, he was the perfect representation of the black experience during that time. It's very hard to attribute the art and the story to a particular person back then because they worked in these uh, comic art shops. They did work for other publishers. And what I found interesting was a lot of these black writers and artists, mostly artists, they liked that separation between them and the editorial staff because if they knew that the person was black, they might not have hired them. Correct. And that's a very important point you hit on there, Chris. Part of the reason why it was easier for him to work in that way is because it gave him that buffer between the white editors and the black artists. Most artists in those days would walk in with a portfolio under their arm, and they'd go in and they'd ask for a job in an editor. And either you get the assignment or you wouldn't. Well, due to social constrictions at that time, blacks were reluctant to do that, depending upon the level of racism of the editor, you know, there's a good chance he wouldn't get the job. So the advent of the comic art shops at the time was a boon to the black artist because what they could do is they could get their assignment through the secondary source because the comic shops were basically packagers. They would uh, provide all the material for a, a given comic. An editor or publisher would come to somebody, say like Jerry Iger, or uh, Harry Chesler, or whoever shop it happened to be, they would say, like, okay, I need all the artwork for this particular comic. And so they would get the assignment, and then he'd go back to a shop, which was just basically a bunch of artists sitting in a room, or a lot of them worked out of their own home. But they would get the assignment, do the artwork, drop it off, and then go on about their way. But the black artists, it worked for them because they didn't have to deal with the editor. I found at least three or four of the artists in interviews referred to that situation. So it was a common situation. Samuel Joyner was one of them who referred to it. Stoner referred to it. Alvin Hollingsworth referred to it, how they had this buffer between them and the white editors. It was a situation that it just happened to work out because of the comics, the way the comics were produced. When I read the chapter about... Robert Pius, and he did the Dupes cartoon, which realistically portrayed black family life. And he also did political cartoons. And at the Pittsburgh Courier, they had, well, you remember the V for Victory campaign against Axis. Well, they had a double V victory campaign. I didn't know this existed against Axis and against racism here in the U.S. What the double V campaign was, blacks, obviously, in many ways, felt they were secondary citizens here within the United States justifiably so. It led to uh, like almost like a division in their loyalties. You know, how loyal were they actually to the United States in their minds? How vested were they in the United States, this country that discriminated against them? So there was like a dual consciousness involved here in the sense of that many of them were patriotic. They were happy to be Americans and stuff like that. But at the same time, they resented their discrimination. So what developed was this campaign which was promoted by the Pittsburgh Courier, this you know, large black newspaper that you mentioned. And it was a campaign they called Double V Campaign because V, obviously for victory overseas against the Nazis and such. And then also V for victory at home because they were hoping that by participating in the war effort and showing that they were loyal Americans and everything, it would lead to a more favorable response here at home from whites. And 
to a certain extent, it came, but almost like begrudgingly. There were changes. If you look at anything prior to World War II and after World War II, there was a different perception the American people developed regarding discrimination and brotherhood and stuff like that. And a lot had to do with the way they saw what the Nazis had done to Jews and other minorities in Europe. I think it was sort of like held up a mirror to the American people, to their own racism and everything here in this country. World War II, in a lot of ways, brought about changes in the public perception, the white public perception of blacks. Obviously, it wasn't an immediate thing, and it wasn't everywhere. It was hoped by blacks that they would achieve victory here at home. And at best, you could say it was a partial victory. There's one person you profiled. I think it's the only writer that you profiled, George Dewey Lipscomb. Maybe the only Golden Age black writer. Well, he's the only one I found. Stoner, his wife did most of the writing, but she just happened to be white. I think he also did some of the writing himself, too. And it's hard to tell because, again, you know how comics were created at that time. It's hard to know exactly how much of the writing an artist might have done. He may have been given a story as an assignment, and he may have written it, but there's no real way of knowing. There were people who were just pure writers and others who were just pure artists, but many times they did both. But Lipscomb was the only one I found who was just a pure comic book writer. He did quite a few comics, especially like classic comics. You mentioned some in the book, David Copperfield, Christmas Carol, Lady in the Lake. The other person that I was familiar with in the book was Matt Baker, because I had seen some of his artwork in some of the Marvel comics or early Atlas comics, uh, Westerns. And I know he did a lot of romance comics. And he was so good. He was highly respected by his peers in the comic shop. Right. Matt Baker was a star. He literally was a star within the comic industry at the time. I happened to get to know Al Feldstein before he died, and I talked to him fairly often. And Matt Baker was actually subject to some of our interactions, and I quote him in the book there. He literally sat next to Matt Baker in the Iger studio. Baker was one of the few blacks who physically was a presence in the studios. Ironically, part of the reason why black artists have not gotten much recognition is because even the artists, the white artists, didn't even know they existed because they did a lot of their work outside of the studios. But Matt Baker was an exception. Him and Hollingsworth were both exceptions. They were a presence. Feldstein told me how when Baker was drawing, the other artists in the studio sometimes would just stand there and look over his shoulder and just watch him. He said he's just such a pure natural talent, his ability of drawing. He was just an amazing artist. He really was. And just it's so sad he died so young. And for a lot of the artists, with the Comic Code and American News Distribution collapsing, a lot of their work dried up. So they had to find other things to do. And both Baker and Alvin Hollingsworth wound up doing work for Sweat Magazines, which was a new term I learned when I saw that. Action men magazines with partially clothed women. That was somewhere where they found work. Oh, yeah. One of the things I think that people may realize as they read my book is that comic books a lot of times were just a fallback for a lot of these guys. Their ambitions were much bigger than to work in comic books. They were either fine artists or they ended up becoming teachers or they wanted to become commercial artists. Matt Baker's ambition was to be a full-fledged commercial artist, to work you know, in magazine illustration and stuff like that, which is much better paying than working in comics, where you just get paid piecemeal by uh, the page. He just started doing that when the comics basically collapsed, because he started with St. John, some of his publications, like in Manhunt and Nugget. And when there was the implosion of comics, they sort of drifted into other parts of the publishing industry. In sweat magazines, which a lot of the comic publishers also did, Atlas also published you know, under magazine management. 
They also published these sweat magazines, as did Hillman and L.B. Cole had a line. There was a lot of overlap between the two. And from there, some of them went on beyond that. But like Hollingsworth went into teaching, and Baker probably would have made it in the commercial art field. But again, he died too young. He died at the age of 37 in 1959, just when things probably would have started breaking for him. Some of those artists, they had white allies that kind of helped them get their foot in the door and have people see their work. And a couple names that popped up in the book, and one gentleman who died young was Joe Manley. And uh, Alex Toth both had involvement with other artists, Alfonso Green. I understand that without Alex Toth talking about him, he might have been lost to history. Exactly. Alfonso Green's name was out there, but I think Alex Toth, when he wrote that one piece on him in All Our Eagle magazine, he uh, sort of brought to light a bit of history about Alfonso Green, which to me is fascinating. You know, he had such a, a checkered past there, you know, in and out of prison and with gangs and stuff like that, but he's a very talented artist at the same time. Because there's other artists that Toth mentioned in that article that I've been trying to locate any work by him. I'm still in the process of doing that right now, but Green was just one of those people who... Uh, Again, you know, fell by the wayside, particularly after the implosion of Atlas there in the late 50s, which I also got to mention, too, that Stan Lee deserves a lot of credit because he employed most of the black comic artists of the 1950s. There was no black comic artist who ever worked for uh, EC, for instance, even as liberal-minded as they were. DC had no black comic artist after Alfonso Green stopped working for him in the mid-40s. Throughout the 1950s, the vast majority of black artists ended up working through timely Atlas comics, and that was all due to Stan Lee. Again, he's a man who was never going to get credit for it, but he did. You know, he employed all these guys. He's like, how fast can you draw? He didn't care about anything else. Like, are you good or are you fast? Yeah. Right. He deserves credit for employing these guys. But again, in 1957, when everything collapsed, Atlas, all these guys lost their jobs. It had nothing to do with race or anything like that. There's only a couple of them survived, like Kirby and Ditko and a few others were kept on. I mentioned Joe Manley, and he suggested to Calvin Lee Massey that he go talk to Stan Mm -hmm. when they graduated from school about doing some art. Right, because they'd both gone to art school together in, I believe it was the Hussein Art School down there in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a key spot for a lot of these black comic artists. A lot of them had associations with Philadelphia at different times. Historically... There's a reason for that, because when a lot of blacks came north during what they called the Great Migration of the early 1900s, the first major city they came to once they crossed the Mason-Dixon line was Philadelphia. So a lot of blacks settled in that area. As you can see there, like even all Negro comics was published by Oren Evans from Philadelphia, and all the artists who worked on it were from Philadelphia. Calvin Massey was from Philadelphia. Samuel Joyner was from Philadelphia. Matt Baker was from Pittsburgh. Stoner was from Wilkes-Barre, which isn't that far from Philadelphia. So there's a definite Pennsylvania link to a lot of these black artists. You know, a lot of people use the GI Bill after they left the service to get an education. But there was a built-in barrier in some ways against blacks. They had the requirements set such that it made it difficult for them to get into college. It's funny you just mentioned that because on my blog, I just wrote a piece about Warren Broderick. He's one of the blacks who didn't make it into my book because at the time when I wrote it, I didn't have all the information I needed. Unfortunately, I had to leave him out. But Warren Broderick was a GI who benefited from the GI Bill after war. And what the GI Bill paid for was basically vocational schools. They wanted these guys to uh, learn a trade, 
most of the guys coming out of the war, and you had to use it within two years of your discharge. Broderick was one who identified who directly did that. He went to a vocational school. Matter of fact, that led from the vocational school. He moved to New York afterwards, and he uh, teamed up with Harry Harrison while they were both going to uh, the cartoonist and illustrator school, Bern Hogarth School. And uh, he was in the same class with Wally Wood. I believe Joe Sinat was in that class, and a few other future comic pros were all in the same class. Matter of fact, I was able to identify Broderick in a photograph, that one famous photograph. I don't know if you've ever seen it. One of the first classes at the Cartoonist and Illustrator School chose a picture of Wally Wood and all of them. And he's standing right behind Wally Wood, as a matter of fact, in the photo. But he definitely benefited from it. For a lot of these men, there aren't photos at all. You had to go through yearbooks or it's cropped from another larger photo. Right. That's what I had to do with that there. Finding the information I did for this book, Chris, was a huge task. I mean, people will never appreciate how much stuff I've had to go through, how many different newspapers and things like that, especially, you know, just to get photographs of these guys. It took me forever to get a picture of Alfonso Green. He quit high school. He didn't have a high school photograph. And the only photograph I could find of him was a booking photo, unfortunately. Like you wrote in the book, just to paraphrase it, without an Elmer Stoner, there might not have been a Matt Baker. And without Baker, there might not have been a Keith Pollard or Billy Graham, who I know he did Black Panther, and Trevor Von Eden, who did Black Lightning, or even a Milestone Comics. So they are the foundation. Even though, as you said, they sometimes they led two lives. Sometimes they hid their true identity, and a lot of them didn't want to talk about the fact they worked in comics. Just like Stan Lee wanted to do something else. He wanted to work in newspaper strips. That was a step up. No one wanted to talk about working comics, but it was necessary to make a living. Right. This applies to almost all the old-time comic guys, not just the black ones. But comic books were just a way to put food on the table for a lot of these guys. I've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of these Golden Age artists over the years. Again, I've been doing this for almost 50 years. You know, I've talked to everybody from Will Eisner. I've met Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and all these other guys, but a lot of Golden Age artists. For a lot of them, it was just a way of making a buck. Some guys made more of guys like Eisner or Kirby and stuff like that were more dedicated to it. And they saw it as more than just a way of making a few dollars. And that's part of the reason why they're so legendary, because they made it into a medium and artistic form. But many of these guys, they were just passing through. It was something they did when they were young or they needed to make some money or they did it on the side while they're doing something else. The big thing was either become a commercial artist or a comic strip artist because that's where the big bucks were. Almost every single Golden Age artist I spoke with, their dream was to be a comic strip artist. They wanted to be Milton Kniff or Al Cap. They didn't dream of becoming uh, Jack Kirby. You know, that, <laughs> They respected Jack Kirby, but at the time, in the 1940s, their ambitions were much bigger. Well, I'm so glad you did the book, and I know you've worked a long time on it, and I can really appreciate the work that went into it, because just getting all the information is hard, as you said, but then to put it together in a cohesive fashion and verify as much as you can and have a great narrative for each individual and then have it all sum up together to make some of the points we talked about today... And it's available again. I mean, you can find it on Amazon. I know at the time, it's not in stock right now because it's sold out. It's just flying off the shelf. So It keeps selling out, which is a mixed blessing, I guess. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. This book has been much more successful than I ever thought it would be. What we do with comics is pretty esoteric, you know, <laughs> us guys who love comics. Mm-hmm. You know, especially the kind of stuff that I write about. Because I try to place comic books into its proper role in history. I try to show where comic books fit into the bigger scheme of things. 
in many ways, I use comic books as an entry point, like I did with these guys here. It was an entry point into the lives of these black artists. And it's sort of like a bridge. A lot of the response I've had about the book have been from people who've never even read anything about comics history, but they said they've learned so much from it. And that warms my heart because I love comic books. I do too. I've been reading them for decades. And the thing that I probably enjoy more than anything else is getting into the history of them and digging into the people behind the books. Because when I read them as a kid, I didn't know who they were. I just saw their credits in the book. Because when I was reading books, when I started, they actually had the credits. <laughs> so I knew who did what. But other than reading the letter page and the item page, I really didn't know much about the people. And then as time went on, I started buying some hardback books and reading books about comics and the making of comics and the stuff that went on in the back rooms and everything. That's where it got really interesting. And then I see the work and look at that and then read what really was happening. It's fascinating stuff. It really makes it much more enjoyable. And I really appreciate that you included work by the artist, even if it was a few pages or the whole story, right in the book. That was intentional. Again, I wish, you know, I'd had more space because I have so much more to show. Again, I'm trying to do that with my blog, which is Invisible Men blog. Anybody wants to check it out. Like I just ran something about Stoner and artwork he did in 1924 for a magazine called The Messenger. It was probably the most influential black literary magazine at the time. It's a critical influence upon the Harlem Renaissance and a lot of famous writers got their start with this magazine. Well, one of the illustrators of the magazine was Elmer Stoner. And people would be shocked to see his illustrative artwork as compared to his comic book artwork. Mm. Again, that's something that I want people to see. There's far more to him than just being comic book artists. And not that I'm denigrating comic books, but there's much more to him, as there is to most artists and most people. We have a tendency as human beings to reduce a person to just one aspect of their lives a lot of times. And that's something that always bothers me when there's usually much more to a person. That's something I try to show with this book, Chris. I urge people to pick up a copy and read it. It's great reading. It's a lot of stuff to get into, so uh, sit back, take your time, and really just slowly read it and enjoy it. And hopefully you'll learn a lot. We just scratched the surface on what's in there. There's a lot of information in there. If you have a few moments, I like to ask you the fun questions I ask all my guests. Just a few. Go of them. for it. I got nothing else to do. Recreation, you're a busy guy. You do a lot of research, a lot of writing. What do you do when you take a break? that's true though i mean i'm a voracious reader it's insane i never stop reading and i'll read literally anything i'll read a scientific text i'll read a mystery story i'll read a comic book i'll sit down and read a classic it doesn't matter i'll read everything i read every news site every single day and it's truly ridiculous how much time I spend reading every single day. And I have almost a photographic memory, which helps a lot too, especially with the sort of things that uh, research and that that I do. I pick up little bits here and there. It helps a lot with my writing. You like to go to the source material within budget when it's possible. Do you like to go back and read, if it's comics, the original comics, if it's possible? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I have a fairly large, for instance, Golden Age collection myself. I've been doing this since the early 60s, okay? Mm -hmm. This is my 60th year, as a matter of fact, 1961. I'm 68 years old, so I'm not a kid. I've been fortunate that when I started collecting comics, I was able to do it when they were still affordable. I'm not one of the guys who encapsulates them and stuff like that. I read my comic books. There's none, I, mean, I don't have anything that's encapsulated. I'll sit down and pull up my Fantastic Four number one and read it, or Spider-Man number one, or whatever it is. And especially when I'm doing research, you know, I've put... Uh, 
tons of stuff online that people could access in different spots online. Well, comics where I'd photocopy things so other people could share them too. It's one of the frustrating things to me that as a comic fan historian, the value of the comic books works almost against the comic fan and the historian because by putting that stuff in plastic, people won't be able to read it. And so much stuff has not been made available to the public. I'm trying to do that as I go along. I work with the guys like a digital comics museum, which are great, you know, a great bunch of guys. And as I'm going along, I'm scanning my comics in that because I've got stuff that's so rare, there's only a handful of copies of. But to me, it means more to get that stuff out there to the public than any value I would uh, receive somewhere down the line. I look at it as my duty almost, passed on this information so future uh, historians and fans will have it. I usually ask my guests, what is your beef, your pet peeve? And that sounds like one that I share with you is the encapsulation. It drives me crazy. Unless a book, like there's one copy of whatever, but I agree with you 100%. I like to read everything that I have. I take care of them, but I don't want anything slabbed. I went back and I bought some of the Submariners from the 1950s. And it's frustrating because so many of the books, when you find them online, they're slabbed. I want to read it. And they're very expensive that way. And here's the insanity. I was looking through the latest catalog and there was listed a copy of Spider-Man number one, not the original, the Todd McFarlane one, a facsimile edition that is graded 9.8, and it was slabbed, and it was like 80 bucks. That's crazy. That stuff drives me nuts, okay? I have bought a few slab comics, and then I break them open. <laughs> you know? Well, what's, where's the value if you can't read it? <laughs> Exactly. You know, I've had that argument with a lot of guys. I know a lot of longtime dealers and fans, and it works against us in the long run, because if all these comics end up in plastic, how can comic fans of the future appreciate them? You may as well just take a photograph of it, put it on the wall. It's useless as a historical artifact. Think about all the great works in the past of literature and stuff, all Shakespeare stuff been thrown into a box and oh you can't open it but you know Shakespeare's uh, first Hamlet is in here you know something like that it's just it's so stupid what we do and it works against our uh, propagating of the hobby you like to talk about comics write about comics in the context of history and to me what's important is to read the comic within the comic which has the ads because it tells me something about society at that time and I don't get that from a reprint plus I don't get the original colors right it's hard to explain to somebody the thrill, at least for me, I get of the smell of an old comic. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. I absolutely do. There's a particular smell of an old comic book and the feel of it and stuff like that. It's, it's a very textual, almost a sensuous kind of feeling. It triggers so many memories for me and stuff like that. But you realize at the time you're holding something in your hand that now when you think about most Golden Age comics are approaching you know, 75, 80 years old. You're talking about something that's going back quite a ways. It's a part of history. It's a, a historical document. And to just lock it away and put it in plastic, I don't get it. I don't get it. They're meant to be seen and read. Exactly. You know, when they printed them, that's what they were meant to be done with them. And what I try to do is expose people to all this stuff and say, this is great stuff. This is why you should be reading it. You know, I try to place everything in a historical context so people understand why this comic was printed or what was going on at the time. It always strikes me as so funny how uh, they talk about trends in comic books, but most times when they talk about trends, they don't realize that trends are driven by aspects of society outside of comics. Things that are going on in the world outside of comics is happening in comic books nowadays, but 
if you go back even in the 1950s, you know, when they had the anti-communist comics and stuff, they weren't created in a vacuum. They were responding to society as a whole. And it's the same thing throughout comic book history. Again, you know, I try to give a context for all that. You know, in this book here, they'll see why some of these comics that were created by these black artists were responding to outside influences. Another one of my fun questions is, if you were stuck on a deserted island, what comic would you want to have with you? One single comic or a series? Let's say a series, because that'd be really, really hard, because you're going to be on the island for a while. Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 38. Ooh, yes. To me, Ditko achieves perfection. I get a chill almost thinking about it particularly that one sequence and what is it, Spider-Man 33, where he's lifting the machinery off himself. Mm -hmm. I've studied those pages. It's not just that one page everybody talks about where he's lifting machinery off, but there's a five-page sequence leading up to it. It is so beautifully done. If you want to explain to anybody the greatness of comic books, what makes comic books wonderful, I've shown people who've never read comic books, I say, just read this one comic, just read the first five pages. And I say, this is what comic books should be. It's perfect to me. You couldn't have done any better. And one of the things I like about those comics, and a lot of the comics back then, through the late 60s or so, but especially in the early days, they were dense. There was a lot of art and story in them. Yep. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a reader of modern-day comics. I pretty much stopped in the 90s when they had all those stupid good girl comics and a lot of image-influenced stuff and things like that. I mean, I, I just started losing interest. They were pinups. Yeah, exactly. To me, the last good comics were ones were done by uh, Shooter's uh, comic. Uh, Valiant? Yeah, Valiant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I loved the Valiant comics of the 90s there, the early 90s. Yeah. I thought it was extremely well done. But again, it was a short-lived thing there. I just thought they were trying something different, you know, giving almost like a real-world spit on a lot of these comics. Since then, I've lost interest in comics just for that very reason. I've gotten in uh, some disputes online with people about that where you'll see an entire page where nothing much happens. There's almost no dialogue. There's two or three huge panels, but nothing much happens. That drives me crazy. As a writer, story means a lot to me. What makes comics so great, it's a combination of visual and writing. And I love that. And when it's done right, there's nothing better. When you get an Alex Toth illustrated story, or you have a Ditko or Eisner, I mean, all those guys are gods to me because of what they did with comics curvy but a lot of the modern day artists i'm not going to knock any particular artist and stuff like that because that's not fair i'm an artist myself i have respect for all artists but it's just not my cup of tea i'll just put it like that it's not my favorite i love some of the artwork it's beautiful oh yeah some are extremely talented the one thing i don't like and i know shooter doesn't like to see there is the decompressed storytelling because if I have a stack of comics and I'm going to sit down and read, my wife said, going to read that now? I said, oh, it'll just take me a few minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and you're right. And, you know, that's funny you say that because that was one of the things when I stopped buying comics. I go, this is stupid. I said, I could read this thing in, you know, less than five minutes. Yet in the old days, some of those Marvel comics and stuff like that, you know, I would read it. And then I'd go back and reread it again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd look at it. This is gorgeous. You know, it's not just the writing and stuff because it, the storytelling – for all intents and purposes, the writing, it's not that impressive, okay? But storytelling is impressive in comic books, and it's two different things. I don't know if people understand that, but there's a difference between writing a story and telling a story and writing something impressive. It wasn't until 
guys like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore came along that people restarted paying attention to the actual writing of a comic book. But there have always been great storytellers. That's what I think comic books excel at. But I think that's one of the things that is fallen by the wayside. Too often, I think comic books just become a way of people expressing their uh, inner turmoil or whatever grievance they particular had, you know. And to me, that takes a lot of the enjoyment away from uh, the comic itself. I read comics for enjoyment, not for lectures. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's some escapism. I need that. I need something that exactly. is inspiring. It doesn't right. have to be really deep. It can just be heroics, just someone doing, just, just actually <laughs> seeing someone do something good. <laughs> Some people right. with values and, and courage. Exactly. It's just nice to see that. <laughs> you know, that's why I go back to that Spider-Man sequence there. Yes. That's exactly what that entire story was about. He was summoning up every single ounce of his strength and everything because he had to get from underneath that machinery to get this serum to cure Aunt May from dying or what her exact situation was. That was the epitome of a heroic act. He wasn't saving anybody directly. But he knew it was in his mind that I have to make this. There's no option. There's no other option. I have to get this machinery off me to go save my aunt. What a tremendous heroic act that was. He wasn't saving the world by stopping a dam from bursting. You know, this one single heroic act that nobody else witnessed, and it came all from within. It came all from within, you know, Peter Parker. That was Peter Parker doing that. That wasn't Spider-Man. That was Peter Parker who was heroic. It's not just a superhero in an outfit. That comic was so important because it was Peter Parker and Spider-Man right. being Spider-Man. Responsibility. He had a life. We saw that life. We saw the people whose lives he touched throughout the day in school, at home, Aunt May. Without that, it wouldn't have really stuck with people, but it really struck a chord with kids. Exactly. And see, that's what made those Marvel comics so great. All of a sudden, I just happened to come in right exactly as Marvel Age was starting, you know, 1961, the same year. It was such a difference. You know, the Fantastic Four was totally different than the Justice League of America, for instance, which was all these big stars. It was like a, a Hollywood movie where you get all the biggest stars in Hollywood, and they all take a cameo appearance. Both the Fantastic Four, you had these guys all fighting amongst each other and calling each other names and teasing, and they had all these personal problems. And then with Spider-Man, and especially the more that Ditko was allowed to uh, express himself, it became more and more of almost like a realistic, in a comic sense, experience. Those early Marvel comics, to me, are without peer, other than maybe something like The Spirit, but that's a comic strip, and that's something different. But as far as like the epitome of what a comic book should be, it's those early Marvel comics. It's important to go back and read comics in order of when they were made because it's something you really can't appreciate if you read comics now. Let's say you just started reading comics and you go back and you read a Fantastic Four. If you read comics throughout history in a progression, you see how much of an impact a Fantastic Four would have. It's like, I like the Beatles. Well, if you go back and listen to music throughout the century and then you get to the Beatles you see how things changed. When you right. pluck it out of context, you really can't get that impact on culture and society at the time it came out. Right. And again, the whole contextual thing is important to me, and that's all part of the historical aspect like I do in my writing, but that's why I do that. Because, for instance, part of the reason why I think there's never been a successful Fantastic Four movie is because they can't figure out how to present it to today's audience. To me, to be a successful Fantastic Four movie, they would have to present the original Fantastic Four origin 
including the whole Cold War aspects of it and stuff like that. Same thing with the Hulk. I think that's part of the reason why there's never been a really great Hulk movie. I mean, what made that story work, it was an atomic above-ground, atomic bomb explosion. And see, at the time, you know, I don't know who you are, Chris, but, you know, the idea of atomic war or war with Russia or competition with Russia was very real. Even as a kid, we were very conscious of all that. So when you read these stories about competition in the space race or the prospects of a nuclear war, that was very real. So the Hulk being created as an accidental exposure to radiation because of above-ground atomic test made sense. But to have it happen in a laboratory or whatever, you know, the way they do it now, kind of takes that away. And I think to be a successful story, they should, both of those franchises should be placed in the context that they originally created. I agree. That's something I've said about the Fantastic Four is that that needs to be a period piece. It has to go back to the 60s. I don't think it's going to work right. otherwise. <laughs> I don't know why they don't do it. And I'm 55, so I do remember in grade school in the early 70s, we'd have these drills we had to get under our desks. So yeah. we were still preparing for mm -hmm. a, a bomb attack. And the best you could do is just get under your desk. I remember right. that, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I grew up in the 50s and 60s and stuff like that. It's all very real to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wish they would take that tack. Marvel kind of did it with the first Captain America movie. Yes. Debuted him in World War II, which fit perfectly. That explains Captain America. If you took Captain America and you just started him today, there'd be all sorts of other social context to it. But if you start him in World War II, it makes perfect sense. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's what a lot of movie makers and stuff don't realize, is not everything has to be cast in today's world. There's other ways of doing it. And I just wish they would take that chance. I agree 100%. Well, Ken, this has been a lot of fun. We could go on and on. We'll have to do this again sometime. <laughs> hey, Chris, I'm a terrible guy to get talking about comics. I mean, I'll do it. <laughs> all day long you know my poor wife has been subjected to this for 30 years so uh <laughs> and she doesn't like comics so <laughs> mine too yeah anytime though chris would be my pleasure thank you ken this has been great thank you so much for being on creator talks well i appreciate it appreciate the talk chris I certainly learned a lot about the golden age of comics from Ken and share his joy and enthusiasm for Marvel Comics from the Silver Age. I hope you enjoyed it too, and if you did, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping this show reach more listeners. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend who's into podcasts and into comic books. And if you like Ken, please let me know if you want to have him back on the show to talk more about the history of comics, and some of the topics you want to know about. To reach me directly, you can email me at creatortalks at gmail.com. That's creatortalks at gmail.com. That is the primary and best way to reach me. If you want to share your favorite books from the Silver Age, or Golden Age, or any age, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod where I post occasionally my Silver Age and Bronze Age comics from my collection. Yes, most of those are Marvel, because like Ken, most of the comics that I grew up reading were Marvel comics. But I've expanded my horizons beyond that since then, reading DC, smaller, and independent publisher comic books. So what's coming up next on the podcast? My next guest is actor and playwright Lawrence Luckinbill. He has done one-man plays which include Lyndon Johnson and Teddy Roosevelt, which is why this show will come out on President's Day. 
and now releasing his first graphic novel, Lawrence is releasing Teddy, about the life of Teddy Roosevelt. This is Lawrence's first graphic novel. And also, Lawrence is known as playing Cybok, Spock's half-brother, in Star Trek number five. So we're going to talk a bit about Star Trek II, how Lawrence got the part, and William Shatner. I've had this interview for a while, and I wanted to release it on a special day near the release of Teddy and also President's Day. So this one was well worth waiting for, folks. Lawrence is a great storyteller and a great actor, and you'll get to hear all about it on President's Day. Please join me then. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.